Hello, I'm Ellen Vince. Welcome to Impact, a podcast about how we can each bring about real change in the world and getting practical in making that happen. And hello, I'm Clive Johnson. A special welcome if you're listening for the first time, and a big thank you to our new subscribers. Each week, we look at one aspect of how we can connect our hearts to offer healing for others with our collective intention, prayers, and meditation, and talk about the critical happenings in our world that need our attention right now, some of which may not be making the headlines where you are. Today's format is going to be a little different than what we've done in the past. We would really like to concentrate on World Holocaust Day, that is this Saturday, January 27th. Clive, you're going to give us a little introduction into World Holocaust Day. Indeed. In fact, there are several designated days around the world. There's the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. This was the UNESCO, the United Nation uh, declared day. There's Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, which is particularly observed in the EU, in Europe. And in the UK, we have Holocaust Memorial Day, and I've been to a number of their events particularly arranged by um, the Centre of German-Jewish Studies at Sussex University over the years. So the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and we'll put their link uh, to their website in the show show notes, explains why it is particularly this day, uh, normally around the 27th of January, which is set aside for particular remembrance. The UN General Assembly designated this day because of the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And it's a time to remember the six million Jewish victims of the Holocaust, not to mention the millions of other victims of Nazi persecution, particularly including the Romani, gay, disabled, and other populations that the Nazis deemed not to be suitable in their their quest for a so-called pure Aryan race. UNESCO continues this day and supports its unwavering commitment to counter anti-Semitism, racism, and all other forms of intolerance that may lead to group-targeted violence. So an important day for us all to remember the millions of people murdered or who are otherwise victims, not only of the Holocaust under Nazi persecution, but in other genocides which have followed in countries such as Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia and Darfur. Now, Ellen, you yourself have a very personal reason for remembering what happened in the Holocaust. And uh, perhaps we might take a little while for you to tell your family story. Yes, I will try to be brief um, because I, I could talk for quite a long time about it. But my late husband's parents and his sister and brother were taken as forced laborers from the Ukraine. So, you know, that Germany came into Russia and invaded, and as Russia was forcing them out, they left through Ukraine, and they took people to be forced laborers. Interesting story that they knew this was happening, and they said, okay, they would, my um, husband, late husband's parents, they were getting on a train to go thinking they could jump off at her family's farm. Well, they got on the wrong train and it never went past her family's farm. So they ended up in Germany. They were, I forget, they were near Munich. And my father-in-law 
was working in the Messerschmitt airplane factory. Mm. They had better conditions than those who were in the concentration camps, of course, but they were not great conditions. And I'll just tell a couple quick stories. There's so much more, but um, my mother-in-law was pregnant during this time and they lived in barracks. Um, My sister-in-law, who still is alive, probably one of the last people um, who have survived the whole World War II occupation, she tells a story that they lived in the barracks, very similar to the TV show Hogan's Heroes. I don't know if in England you ever watched that show, but she said that was the best depiction of what the conditions were like of where they lived. So they were, the forced laborers were given cigarettes, but my mother-in-law was pregnant and she would throw the cigarettes over the fence to the POWs who were in the um, the farm next door. They had to work on the farm and she got caught. So at eight and a half months pregnant, they were going to hang her. Oh my goodness. And, sh- and make, make a statement for the rest of the camp. So they took her out and put her on the gallows. And right before they hanged her, they let her come down and, oh and let goodness. her survive, obviously. Or my late husband wouldn't have been here. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Also, somehow, my father-in-law was able to get milk from a farm. And we're not sure how he did that, you know, being in the forced labor camp, but he did. And my mother-in-law would make cheese out of it. And she also made something they would call garbage bread. And I'm sure it was just by collecting whatever they had in order to make the bread. Their barracks were positioned as the last barracks before this farm where the POWs had to work that I told you about. There was a window and she would take the garbage bread and spread it with the cheese that she made and put it on the sill of the window so that these POWs could walk by and get something to eat. When they were liberated and the Americans came in and freed them, this gets me emotional every time. Mm -hmm. Their barracks was full of POWs who were thanking my mother-in-law for keeping them alive. Wow. How amazing. How Mm -hmm. amazing. So after they were freed, they had to stay in Germany for a little while, for a few more years until they could be sponsored by somebody to come to either Canada or Australia or the US. So someone would leave and establish themselves in the US and then they would write back and sponsor two more people to come for them. It was really quite a process. Mm. And as you can see, they ended up in the United States. And though they had a, you know, a difficult life, it wasn't easy. Of course, they came with three trunks of of things that they owned. That's it. Mm. And um, we have those trunks. Um, and they built a life here in the wow. United States. Wow. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary story. And my goodness, how how deeply moving. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think every time, I mean, this is clearly something very uh, personal and meaningful for you and your, your family, but mm-hmm. every time we hear stories of survivors from that period, They've each got their own tale to tell, and there's there's often a, a, a miracle or two, what we might call yes. a miracle or two, um, 
that's been involved. When you were talking about the, the train being on the, the wrong train, yes. I was thinking of two brothers who uh, were survivors who I, I heard speak last year, I think it was, because they're still around, um, who came from Berlin on the very, very last train <laughs> before the border was closed. They knew that there was going to be um, uh, a real clampdown, and they, they, they literally, on the last train, were able to get over to the edge of Holland and out to the UK. Their aunt, apparently, I think it was their aunt, who was going to be with them on the train, said, no, I've got to go back. I've forgotten some clothes or something, and she didn't come out. I, I, I can't remember. I don't think she survived the war. I'm not quite sure what happened. So there are these these moments on there of uh, moment on the gallows. Goodness, yes. And there there is one more miracle story that you're like you're talking about um, when the Americans would come to bomb the Messerschmitt airplane factory. They had created a process where my father-in-law would grab Alla, who was five at the time, and get on a bike and you know go far away. Mm. Everybody had what they did, you know, when that was happening. Well, my mother-in-law decided she'd had it. She'd had enough. So she stayed in the barracks. She was making dinner. Um, when they returned, the barracks had been bombed. And she was kind of in shock, just stirring the pot. My goodness. But they still, and, and they are um, Ukrainian Orthodox. They still have the cross that was near her that is filled with shrapnel. Mm. So it was a miracle mm. that she survived and was yes. alive. Yes, absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And what a great, wonderful soul giving. Oh, yes. You know, passing on the cigarettes and, and, and yes, the yes. bread. And I, never, and, I never was able to meet her, which oh, I'm very sad about. Yeah, she sounds, sounds absolutely wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful human being. Well, actually, there is a legal definition of genocide. And, and this is it's actually a very – the law it often is, is very complex – the trying of genocide, of countries for genocide, is actually very, very difficult because what has to be proven is not just the act of murdering or persecuting or torturing many people, but it's, it's genocide is described as, as a crime where there is an intention to destroy an entire group, and that, that's particularly difficult to prove. The concept's been around since before the time of the Second World War. It was first coined by a Polish lawyer, Rafael Lemkin, back in the early part of the 20th century in connection with atrocities that were conducted against the Armenian population uh, in the uh, Ottoman Empire just around the time of the First World War. But it was only really after the first, uh, after the Second World War, when the United Nations came to be, uh, that the then newly formed General Assembly resolved that genocide should be a crime punishable under international law, and it defines genocide as any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethical, racial, or religious group. This includes killing members of the group causing serious bodily or mentally harm, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, either in whole or part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So those actions don't actually need to lead to deaths to be considered acts of genocide. And it's also a criminal offence to plan or incite genocide. This recognises that it's very often a process that once the seeds are there, 
as we saw with the the Nazi story, mm. if they're allowed to, if they're not stopped, that genocide is the ultimate end that can result. And sadly, genocide did not end with the Holocaust, as as we know, and it continues to this day. So some other major genocides of the 20th and 21st century include Cambodia. Between 1975 and 1979, they imposed an extremist program to reconstruct Cambodia, but millions of people died through starvation, disease, exhaustion, and thousands were executed. Then in Rwanda, in a violent outpouring in 1994, approximately a million Tutsis and moderate Hutus were murdered in just 100 days of genocide in the country. Then in Bosnia in 1995, that was the backdrop of an ongoing civil war and Bosnian Serb forces led by Ratko Mladic murdered around 8,000 Muslim men and boys in the town of Srebrenica. Then in Darfur, Sudan in 2003, a civil war began in Darfur and the Arab militia known as the Janjaweed attacked indigenous people, destroying entire villages and murdering civilians and displacing them more. Then Iraq and Syria in 2016, where um, UN human rights investigators accused so-called Islamic State of committing genocide against Yazidis in Iraq and Syria. Thousands of Yazidi people were rounded up or killed by ISIS fighters in the Singar region of Iraq with women and children sold as slaves and given as gifts to militants. So genocide and extreme prejudice are still happening in the world today as we know and Genocide Watch, and we'll put the link to this in the show notes, is a nonprofit coalition um, of organizations against genocide that exist to predict, prevent, stop, and punish genocide and other forms of mass murder. They publish regular alerts of incidents or threats of genocide. And many excellent country reports may be downloaded from this website. I highly encourage you go and check it out. Mm, it's very, very good. Mm. Yeah. So it currently reports emergencies, which it defines as being where the genocidal process has reached the stage of massacres and other acts of genocide. In Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Turkish aggression in Syria and Iraq, and registers warnings, that's when the genocidal process has reached the stages of preparation by perpetrators and persecution of a targeted group in Manipur, India, Armenia, Israel and Gaza, and the plight of the Yuma people in Bangladesh. Many other areas are on its watch, including Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, the Solomon Islands, Cuba, and Haiti, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So there are many areas we might be drawn to hold intention concerning genocide, as you can see. Holocaust and genocide distortion and denial are a continuing challenge. So knowing the facts about the Holocaust and genocide is vital. Clearly, we might will for those at the International Court of Justice who are trying genocide cases. 
and those investigating and monitoring actual genocide or situations where the seeds of genocide are evident to be guided in their actions and decision-making. We will that those who hold prejudices against others are moved to consider their own humanity. And of course, we might hold those who have been victims of genocide or who are currently facing persecution because of their perceived difference. So we will that the leaders and influencers of governments that may have differences with one or more groups of people who live within their country's borders will be moved to recognize the essential humanity and right to freedom of expression of all peoples. And of course, we'll put that intention into the show notes. Mm, what a powerful and important intention for us to, to hold. I guess not really mm. just this week, but whenever we can, really, whenever it comes to us. You're listening to Impact, a podcast for anyone who believes in making a difference in the world through prayer, healing, and sending intention out into the world. Join us as we focus attention on where healing is needed right now. Together, we change our world. Turning attention now to some other stories that have caught our attention this week. And I think we mentioned last week that there were mounting tensions between the neighbours Iran and Pakistan. This week, they exchanged cross-border airstrikes on what each claim were militant hideouts being used one against the other, following an attack by Iran early last week on two compounds in southwest Pakistan. Pakistan attacked training camps that it says belonged to Balak insurgents in southeastern Iran on Thursday. At least two children were killed in the first attack, while Iranian sources report that nine people, including two children, were killed in the attack on their territory. Now, promisingly, Pakistan's uh, Foreign Minister Jalil Abbas Jilani spoke with the Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdul Ahain on Friday, and the two agreed to de-escalate the situation, noting a need to maintain mutual trust and cooperation. Relations between uh, Sunni-majority Pakistan and Shia-majority Iran have never been particularly strong. However, both have strived to maintain a diplomatic and trade exchange. And I have to say, this um, development this week, uh, the way this story's gone, has been really quite interesting in my own learning about intention, really. When Iran struck the Pakistan bases, my intention suggested in the in the Inside Timer group that I, I, I have each day was that this wouldn't escalate. And then I looked at the news the next day and I, hear, I heard that Pakistan had responded, which initially got me feeling a little bit despondent. But here was a reminder that literally a day later, <laughs> this had turned back and actually they were de-escalating. And it occurred to me that sometimes a tit-for-tat albeit a, you know, a violent attack, sometimes might need to happen in order for that intention you know, to, to come to be. So kind of, kind of a message there to me to not despair and perhaps not to jump on the news too quickly, uh, which I don't tend to do, actually. It just happened that that was the story that I, uh, a story I came across. And um, yeah. I love that. And good for you, Clive, <laughs> for setting that intention. Stick with it. 
is the key, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. So there was a deadly attack on a Donetsk mark- marketplace in the Ukraine. Um, a deadly artillery strike by Ukraine on a crowded market in Russia, which usually we hear this going the other way, mm. was held in Donetsk this past weekend and it killed at least 27 people and injured 25 others. Many of the injured are said to be in critical condition, according to the Ministry of Health of Russia, and having deep wounds and vital organs and needing limbs to be amputated. Gosh darn it. Mm. Seems a very targeted attack on civilians, in this case, Russian civilians. And of course, there are a lot of (laughs) millions of very innocent Russians wrapped up in this crisis, many innocent who've been called up to serve in their army, many who don't yes. approve of their government. Yes, um, yes, we, some of us can, can sometimes forget that, um, that, uh, you know, this war is affecting them as well as the millions of Ukrainians as well who are suffering. Yes, it's a good reminder. Mm. And here's a story that has both depending on how you look at it, both good and bad, perhaps. Um, Temperature, day length and humidity have all been found to be linked to the increased spread of uh, an illness, a diarrhea-based illness, according to a study by the UK's University of Surrey, which was published this week. Whilst this learning that what we know now, according to the the researcher's leader, Dr. Lo Yacono, is that climate change not only has environmental impacts, but in this case has has a potential to affect in a in a negative way our health by enabling a rapid spread of infectious diseases. There is also, as it were, a good news aspect to this as well, in that the data that is becoming available and having this knowledge, according to another of the studies researchers, visiting Professor Gordon Nichols at the University of Surrey, having this data can enable us to understand complex patterns in the spread of diseases, and so potentially then to identify vulnerable areas uh, of potential outbreak and be more proactive, more able to respond to them and to treat people affected, curbing the spread of disease. So one of these stories that has both good and bad, perhaps. So it has good at the cost of those who are affected by the bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we will, it wasn't that... spreading but further, but at least there's some uh, something coming out of this. They're this learning research, from it. This learning, yeah. And I hope this isn't a sign of what's going to happen as climate change increases too. Well, I yeah. think we, we reported before, didn't we, on the spread of dengue fever as mm-hmm. another one. Yes. It does seem to be. Uh, yes. Very much linked with changing climate patterns. So, yeah, there, there probably are other diseases, other viruses that are spreading, if not more rapidly, they're, they're moving into areas of the world where they, they, they perhaps haven't been prevalent before. Yeah. Well, Egypt says it's going to support Somalia as the East African nation seeks normalizing its relations within the region. And Egypt will not allow any threat to Somalia, President Abdel Fattah al-Sihi, I hope I said that right, al-Sihi, said on Sunday after Ethiopia said it would consider recognizing an independence claim by Somaliland in a deal that would give it access to seaport. 
Egypt has poor relations with Ethiopia while tensions in the Horn of Africa remain high. And the port lease deal, which was agreed earlier this month but not yet finalized, would be a boon to landlock Ethiopia and has enraged Somalia. Meanwhile, Somalia is intensifying efforts to join the East African community, the EAC, economic bloc, reducing regulation on trade with Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. There's a growing confidence in the country's stability and progress, and recent milestones such as the lifting of the arms embargo that had been in place for over 30 years and writing off debts amounting to $4.5 billion are seen as monumental achievements for Somalia. I would think that writing off $4.5 billion, that's a good thing mm, <laughs> for them. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I read that uh, there was a minister, a trade minister, I think, in, in, in the Somali government who was a great visionary. And he, he was talking about building a bullet train line between their capital, which I forget offhand, and Kigali in Rwanda <laughs> as an example of what cooperation might achieve. I don't, I don't think it was a, a serious plan at this stage, but uh, def, definitely a visionary there. And it's a very interesting area, the whole Horn of Africa that perhaps we should take a quite a close look at at the moment. There's a lot happening there. Uh, coastline, which is very unsafe. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, that whole area, the, the Gulf of Aden, currently uh, where the Houthis are attacking merchant ships and uh, the US and UK and others have been attacking them. In, in retaliation, yes. Yes. what's happening there? And uh, we don't hear we don't hear in the states. We don't get as much news about Africa as um, maybe you do in the UK. Um, so I do feel that I I need a primer. Yeah, well, especially the, the the border areas of um, Ethiopia, Somali, Somalia itself. There is uh, tied up with the story the question of independence of Somali land which isn't widely recognized. Um, so there's tension there. There's the situation with the Tigray people in the border areas of Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, again, the, the sort of um, pirates op operating off the coast of Djibouti, another country in, in that area. There's a lot of tension and a lot of uneasy relationships between the neighbors. We don't in the UK actually... Um, hear very much about what's what's happening there either and and it's it's a travesty really because it's it's a very volatile region uh which undermines as we're now finding perhaps our security as well in that area i, mean, right. I know it's, i know it's actually the other side of the gulf of aden where the houthis and on the yemen side seem to be launching their attacks but yeah that whole maritime area <laughs> which is vital for international shipping mm -hmm. Uh, under threat so we are we're seeing it that way now and just remembering we're all connected mm, absolutely absolutely yes. should make us interested mm, mm. but hope there that uh, Somalia is, is is moving forward to becoming having regular relations with with other East African countries and indeed other countries in the world and really talking more about trade and cooperation than being focused on its its domestic problems and Egypt as well, getting more interested in the role it plays in, in that area as well. 
Not such a good uh, news story, this one, I'm afraid, from Haiti. Uh, gang members in the capital there, Port-au-Prince, have raided a key community, Solino, which happens to be home to many police officers. And that community was held under siege for four days with real fear beginning to grip residents. The Associated Press reported that gangs are now are now estimated to control up to 80% of Port-au-Prince and have been suspected of killing nearly 4,000 people and kidnapping another 3,000 last year. These gangs are jockeying for power and putting pressure on the interim Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, uh, who's only in power until February the 7th, that's the agreement for his interim time in, in that office. Analysts fearing that if Solino falls, gangs would have easy access to other neighbourhoods in the capital, such as Canapé Vert, which until now has been largely peaceful. And Ellen, I think uh, the subject of Haiti is something that featured in, in um, Labyrinth Activist Network. Yeah, in our Labyrinth Activist Network circle, we circle, did yeah. an intention for Haiti because there is a woman in the circle who um, is connected to an orphanage there. And we mm. learned a little bit about what was happening the people who were volunteering and working at the orphanage really were risking their lives every day when they're left when they left their home. That's how bad the violence is there. Yeah. And um, they were still doing that so that they could serve the children. And I, I'm still uh, not completely. I don't understand what's happening that these mm. gangs can take over. So I did a little investigation yesterday to try to understand this more. And I, I came up with an interesting statistic that there are 10,000 police officers for the population of 11 million people. Mm. And that's really um, a big part of why they can't control these gangs. Mm. They mm. just don't have the power to do it. It's so sad. Mm. And seemingly like this, this incident in Salino, the, the police were being targeted, essentially. Yes, so, yes. Yeah, if, if this uh, situation continues, um, yeah, it, it, it's looking like a lawless situation, isn't it, essentially? And no one's, no one's safe. <sighs> it will be um, interesting to watch. It will indeed, yeah. And, and definitely we need to hold these people and um, the people who are trying to do good work who are um, also suffering. They have um, some nuns, I think, they've taken hostage. That was a story I heard yesterday too. And um, the Pope has asked for their release. So mm. lawless is the good word, Clive, that yeah. what's happening there. I, it strikes me as very much like the, the, the story, your, your family story from earlier, you know, trying to do good, trying to risk your own life as it were, to provide cigarettes or bread mm -hmm. to others uh, here in the orphanage, um, risking their lives quite yes. literally every day just to help the children. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. They, they are people that need real protection, aren't they? So let us send intentions for Pakistani and Irani leaders to continue to recognize that in any military escalation of their complaint with each other over the attacks of their compounds may have serious consequences for both nations. For those treating the injured following the artillery strike on the market in Donetsk to be guided to provide appropriate, timely, and effective care. 
for an openness among East African nations to welcome Somalia into its fold and for calming tempers in Haiti. Hmm. And finally, a good news story. Yeah, it sounds like we need one, doesn't it? After this? Yes. <laughs> this is uh, in connection with the global agreement that was um, made last September by 84 nations concerning the conservation of the world's ocean, oceans. As with all treaties, there was a legal requirement for 60 countries to sign up to this, to actually ratify it by their national governments before 2025, when the United Nations is organizing an ocean conference in order for this to, to actually become law. First country in the world, Chile, a strong supporter of the agreement, agreed to ratify the agreement this week. Dr. Laura Meller, who fronts the Protect the Oceans campaign of Greenpeace, said, We hope more countries will be inspired by Chile's rapid ratification and follow their lead to bring the treaty to life. According to Greenpeace, once it comes into force, the treaty will be a crucial tool for creating vast ocean sanctuaries, which actually would cover at least 30% of the oceans. And this would protect uh, these areas from increasing threats, such as from industrial fishing, pollution, and deep sea mining. That is a good move in the right direction. It, it is. And it, it's very significant, actually. You think about 30% of the world's oceans will be protected by this. That's really quite a, that's really quite something, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's kind of amazing that not 100% of the oceans are yes. protected, but let's start with 30. And yay, oh. Chile. Thank you. <laughs> and very good for Chile, really making this priority. You know, within a matter of months, this has been high on their parliament's agenda and they're getting on with it. So absolutely, as Greenpeace is saying, let there be a light for many other countries to do the same. Yes. yes. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Remember, you can connect with us in the Facebook group and for live intention holding in Clive's daily insight timer offerings and with me in the Labyrinth Activist Network's Zoom calls. Details of how to hook up with these are in our show notes. And don't forget that our main intention for this week in response to the Holocaust and memorial and what is happening in our world today. We will that the leaders and influencers of governments that may have differences with one or more groups of people who live within their country's borders will be moved to recognize the essential humanity and right to freedom of expression of all peoples. And like I said, that will be in our show notes. Thank you for listening and for sharing with us and holding intentions. We look forward to connecting again next time. And in the meantime, thank you, go well, stay safe. And remember, we're more powerful together. Impact is presented by Ellen Vince and Clive Johnson and produced by Impact Productions. Our theme music is by Chris Collins and our logo artwork is by Auto Classic. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible or your favorite podcast provider. We're a non-commercial podcast dedicated to people of any faith tradition or none who yearn for healing in our troubled world. Please pass on the word so others may join us in making an impact. Thank you for listening.